And one of the things that he studied is the value of unpredictable perturbations. Now, just as a qualifier, this has mostly been in people returning from injury, but they've got pretty dramatic results. So, for example, a simple drill might look like uh, I'm going to do a, I, I'm going to step off a box. And it's not a high box, maybe a 20 centimeter box, you know, it's not very high. And I'm just going to stick the landing. So it's an easy task. And just as I'm stepping, stepping off, I get a nudge. Simple as that. I just get a nudge. I get a push. I have a partner behind me and they give me a little push. So that is a, an unexpected perturbation. I don't hit the ground as I planned. And all these really short loop, really primitive reflexes have to kick in. Boom, boom, boom. And then I stabilize. Uh, another one might be I'm going for a basketball layup and I get nudged again. So again, my landing is thrown off and I have to adjust. And again, if the short loop reflexes have to kick in really quickly and correctly, and then the longer loop reflexes kick in and then my conscious control kicks in. Now, that sounds like really simple stuff, but the amazing thing has been, even with international level athletes, the level of improvement that they've gotten in things like short-term speed, uh, jump ability, basic metrics uh, you know, of, of coherent, powerful athletic movement. That was sports scientist and coach John Kiley speaking on the use of perturbation and the dramatic performance effects it can bring about in a training program. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today, and we have none other than sports scientist and strength coach, John Kiley. John is a senior lecturer at the University of Lancashire, a strength coach with extensive experience in rugby, as well as other sports. Uh, he's worked with uh, Olympic level triple jumpers for those of you track coaches who are tuning in today. And he's also a former boxing champion. Um, John is definitely one of the most intelligent minds in the field. He's widely known uh, for his ideas or ideals in periodization and planning uh, maybe so much so that you saw John Kiley and you were thinking, 
All right, periodization. We're going to talk periodization. I love periodization. I really, I, organization of training has been something that's just been near and dear to my heart for a long time. I, I couldn't have been a 20 uh, a athlete and coach in my 20s more obsessed with the subject and still love it today. But uh, John's experience and knowledge runs much further than periodization. I, I've listened to the podcast and episode he, episodes he's done on that, and it's just brilliant stuff and definitely has had an impact on my thoughts on on the topic. Um, but one of the some of John's work that's really struck a chord with me that's kind of I, I re, I've read it and then have never been able to look um, the same way at things in terms of athletes and how athletes put together movement is uh, coordination and running. And I know obviously there's the trend in this podcast, sprinting, jumping, and all these things that are important to being a high level athlete. But the cool thing about coordination training, when you really get into it, is it, it goes into skills for all sports, any sport you could think of. It's skill acquisition is, is just critical. And uh, we all know that, obviously, success in sport runs much deeper than just how uh, high you can jump or how fast you can run. Those things are awesome. But knowing coordination uh, really can, uh, it's, it can help improve all facets. And so one of the things that John is going to chat with us about is coordination, uh, variability as well. So how and why is it important to get uh, variability different and not training the same exact skill over and over and over again? Uh, he draws parallels to the field of music. What happens to the brain when you just um, do the same skill? And, and I take that from when I was a high jumper and found out very quickly that if I only practice high jumping, you, I got away from basketball and a diversity of jumping and movements. Um, and, and it was always common in track is you go stale, like a high jumper will get stale and not jump as high the further they get away from basketball season. Why is that? What's going on? Obviously, a lot of things, but what's going on in the brain? And it was really cool to hear John's take on that. I really can never look at diversity of movement the same way again. And I think it's uh, it's something that's always going to stick with me. On the show, we also get into the concepts or the uh, theory and ideas of how we differed in terms of running from the animals, how we got to where we are now. He's also John is also going to talk about reflexes in sport as well as, as well as internal versus external cues given the rules of coordination and training. And actually, I should expand on that. He's going to give a checklist or uh, basically buckets to or checks <laughs> boxes to check. There we go, boxes to check as you uh, decide if the coordination, if skill acquisition is going to take hold in your program. So if you want athletes to learn a skill, what are the boxes you need to check off to make that happen? And that is gold. And I think you are going to, uh, coming on the back end of this episode, I can't imagine that you won't be able to learn something new in that overview of how you see athletes learning skills, getting better at what they do. So let's get on to the show, episode 113 with John Kiley. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Joel, uh, pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you. So reading through your writings in the last um, several years uh, and listening to some of the other podcasts you've done, I, I know you've done just a ton of really quality work on periodization that's given me some really big things to think about and continue to think about as I go through my programming. Um, but I think it was the original article that got me turned on to your work was some things that you've done with, with running. And um, I think it was something with runners, runner, some, some online runners, well, I can't remember the name, but you're talking about people who had like their hams, no hamstring and could still function or something and run fast still. And I was like, holy cow, like the human body is amazing. So I, I really wanted to uh, focus on that today and, and dig into that topic a little bit. And 
so I, I guess there's a lot of ways to come at this, but uh, when we compare uh, humans to animals uh, in terms of how we you know, evolved and developed and where we are now, uh, what are we what are we good at and what are we poor at? I think maybe that's a good place to start. And I think a lot of an people don't really look at animals, but I certainly like comparing. So what strengths do we have uh, compared to the animal kingdom? Okay, well, obviously you're talking about in, in terms of strengths we have in, uh, in relation to running. Um, and maybe that article you mentioned, just to scroll back to that a little bit, that was something in the running times, uh, which is a, a kind of a, a coach coach's wing of runner's world. I think it's gone out of business now, hopefully not because of that article. But, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it was they were interested in, in something on coordination, which is kind of a, a topic that I've been really interested in for a long time. And the example of the, so there was an American Olympian, Serena Burla, who had, oh, I forget what hamstring muscle it was, but she had it, most of it removed following a cancer uh, and qualified for the Olympics after that, you know, became a 220 marathoner, which is kind of the the, the stamp of excellence in, in female marathon running at the moment. Uh, and I, I added another, I had another story there from 1938 Olympics of a runner, uh, Glenn Cunningham, who had had most of one of his feet amputated as a kid subsequent to a fire. Now, uh, a fire when he was very young, uh, but but he learned to run and he was a dominant 1500 meter runner, was favored for the gold in, in, in Berlin, but but ended up with a silver, but you know, broke multiple world records over the course of his career. And, you know, things like that kind of fly against our, the conventional way we teach about or think about running and training in general. We, we kind of have it, we, we have a philosophy and a theory that's constructed as if we're trying to train machines, you know, and, and there's a big distinction between a machine which has one perfect way of operating software and hardware, this is the way, the only way. Whereas humans, especially when it comes to something like running, we are master adapters. Burla adapting to the loss of, or partial loss of a key muscle, for example, and finding a way around it. Cunningham losing a, a couple of foot arches and finding a way around it. And, and, and that's what we do all the time. Um, yeah, so, so that type of I guess plasticity is a good thing to call it because it's dependent on plasticity in the brain, neuroplasticity in the spinal cord, neuroplasticity, and at the level of the tissue as well, just tissue plasticity. And we are really the nature's superstars in just being adaptable. So I guess in relation to your question in how do we, how do humans compare to animals as, as runners? There's a couple of big dis distinctions, but they're not really distinctions we think about on a regular basis. And I guess the first one is we are, first of all, we're the best endurance runners out there. Um, you know, horses run us close and under some circumstances, over some distances, at some temperatures, horses, a well-trained horse would beat a well-trained person. But, you know, you get the right environmental circumstances if it's hot. If it's humid, uh, 
Yeah, humans will beat horses. And it's actually an incredible skill we don't really think of. We are the best endurance runners. I guess the key the key paper on that was Lieberman and Brandle, Bramble, um, Dan Lieberman from Harvard in 2004, published in Nature. Forget the name of it now, but uh, it just went through all the adapt- adaptations that, that we have embedded in us that that enable us to just be fantastic runners and that how that was a survival strategy for humans uh, back in, you know, prehistoric days where collections of humans would hunt an animal to heat heat exhaustion. And it's just a very effective, very safe way of catching your dinner without exposing you to excessive risk. So how were we different uh, on a kind of practical level? Well, first of all, we we dissipate heat through our through our skin. We're hairless and so on, uh, whereas most uh, animals have to slow down to pant, basically. Uh, but again, if anyone wants to read more on that, on 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 that, if they read Lieberman's work on uh, persistent hunts, then that that'd be a, a really interesting read for them. Um, the other thing I think that's we don't think about a lot but it's quite remarkable is that if you get a, a foal or a calf they're they're standing after a couple of hours whereas we're you know we're lying on our bellies and our backs kicking in the air for for um the first number of months of our life at least uh and and there's a good reason for that that long prolonged infanthood and that is you know, a foal is born with some pretty hardwired reflexes in, in there. Whereas all all of ours, we do have reflexes, obviously. And you'll see in a newborn child, they'll scrunch their fingers and they'll open their hand and they'll scrunch their eyes and so on. But ours are a lot less hardwired. Uh, now, that's a problem from one perspective, because we're totally vulnerable for the first few years of our lives. But on the other hand, it, it's what differentiates us from most, from, from most animal species, and that is that we can learn to do a wide variety of skills in a wide variety of ways. So, you know, uh, a seal might be able to balance a ball on its nose in a circus, but they can't play the violin uh, or they can't drive a car and, and no other animal comes close to our level of skills. And it's really because of that, it's, it's, we're born pretty much as a blank slate. And then gradually over time, we plastically embed movement habits uh, and we have the space to do it. And we've we've the developmental time to do it because we're, you know, we're we're nurtured throughout uh, our long childhood. And and yeah, so uh, I went on too long in that. But bottom line, we have there's plenty of differences between us and animals. One other thing that's worth mentioning is that we're also the only efficient runners who run on two on on two legs and running on two legs is very different to running on one leg it's obviously way more of a stability challenge and that stability challenge isn't trivial because if you think about it you know the most sensitive delicate precious part of our beings are our brains and our brains are pretty delicate and yet we've decided to stick them on top of this long pole and then bounce along on one foot when we spend most of the time off the ground. So it, t- it seems a pretty, pretty crazy evolutionary strategy 
but I guess on the other side, what it what it does is it, it gives us an evolutionary advantage, uh, whatever that advantage might have been back in in you know days gone by, the ability to see, I don't know, be very efficient, be able to use our hands while we run. Uh, brings me to another distinction between us and the animals is that we can think pretty clearly when we run. In other words, our brains don't uh, shortcut everything else and push our ability to to think carefully out. Or, or it, it doesn't use up all that spare capacity in our neural system. So we can think while we run, which again, uh, it's hard to judge that with animals, but it's not clear that they can do that as as adeptly as we can. Long story short, whole load of adaptations makes us very efficient uh, runners. Uh, um, we are better than the four-legged animals under most circumstances. Uh, we can think. We have exceptional balance, but that balance takes a long time to uh, reach its full fruition. Um, but yeah. I guess that's a, a short question answered in a very long way. Uh, it's, I, I really appreciated that, actually, because for me, I guess, you know, there's there's the, the running and training nerd side of me. And then also just the a lot of almost like light bulbs that go off in the sense of when we train athletes for performance, I guess not like like sports skill performance, I guess you could say. Well, maybe in some ways, but just like raw movement, like you watch a, a cheetah run and you're like, well, who needs to train that cheetah to run? Like a thing could go like. But um, uh, what fascinated me particularly is, is you hear people talk about the human body is, is very reluctant to adapt. It likes to adapt in the direction of endurance. It's hard to train it to adapt to speed to being faster is a lot is the thing that I think about a lot. And it's interesting in terms of how what you were saying, how the human body um, evolved and how we became different and how you know, we probably had an advantage in hunting and things like that working collectively. Uh, and so one of the things that you said actually was it was kind of a combination that really got me thinking is the human body being uh, less kind of hardwired in reflexes and more plastic. I, um, I had written an article a long time ago on why um, an, a chimpanzee was stronger than a human from a nervous system perspective. It was something with the gray and the white matter, and they, had, they could just produce some eight more force really fast, but they had less ability to like fine-tune, like a chimp can't play the violin. <laughs> like It's just too much of a fine motor task for it. Um, anyways, long story short, I was thinking like uh, a lot of the training, especially and I, I've mentioned this in a lot of my podcasts, so I'm a little redundant, but I, I do a lot of in, uh, learning into some of the Jay Strader uh, mentality, which is a lot of coordination, it's very specific to turning muscles on and off as quickly as you possibly can. And it's almost like you're trying to eliminate some of those, um, those inhibitions and, and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, with the, like the, um, maybe a question I could follow up here is, uh, you know, Franz Bosch talks a lot about the reflexes, cross-sex sensor and stumble and, and these types of things. Uh, what's your take on the role of, since reflexes are so plastic, uh, we have a lot of, I guess, humans or, or potential athletes who could have a really less developed like cross-sex sensor reflex than others. And how does that development play a role in athletics? Okay, well, a <clears throat> couple of things there. First of all, uh, I know Franz pretty well, and we, you know, we we get on well, and we've presented together a couple of times on coordination because we both, you know, look at the same topic but with different eyes, which which is always good. Um, yeah, I I think that we th there are reflexes 
embedded throughout uh, our spinal cord. They underlie everything we do in movement. Some of those reflexes are very uh, short latency, very fast reflexes uh, happen in a very short time, but they're very dumb in the sense that they don't do anything complex. It's just an on-off switch. Higher up the, the spine, the, the, there's more complex reflexes who are maybe a little more nuanced and work in a slower time frame or work on a slower time frame. Also embedded in our spine uh, that's really relevant to running, walking, crawling, any rhythmical evolutionary embedded uh, uh, activity or gait are what tend to be called central pattern generators. I say tend to be because there's still some kind of argument about what exactly they are, but basically collections of, of, of neural circuitry that regulate rhythmic evolutionary prioritized movement. And that makes great sense from a evolutionary efficiency perspective. So let's say Joel decides Joel wants to run. In his higher brain, there's a decision, I'm gonna run. But your higher brain is really precious real estate. That doesn't want to be taken up with what is a mundane, uh, activating a mundane task. So that'll just hit a lower brain center and say, oh, Joel pressed the button to run. Uh, okay, what speed? Okay, bam, bam, bam. It'll take in sensory information and it will say, okay, let's do this. Then it will hit the spinal cord. It'll hit a central pattern generator and that, and it will basically say, okay, plug and play here. Put in your jogging program and run that. Uh, and then you take a step and all these postures and stabilization reflexes are kicked in and activated. Uh, the more practiced you are as a runner, the more coherent they are, the more uh, the more well aligned they are, the more dependent they are on 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 each other in terms of if this happens in in this reflex and this happens in this reflex and it becomes a, this beautifully mutually orchestrated control system that's just very efficient. You know, it's like Bill Gates isn't emptying the, the trash cans at the end of the day. Everything is delegated down and you keep the prime decision-making real estate in, in terms of higher brain centers for doing what they and only they can do. Everything else is farmed out. So from that perspective, and just to try and bring it back to where you were going with your question in relation to well, you know, what's the practicalities of these, I think coordination training is kind of the last big frontier are one of the big fun, unexplored frontiers in athletic conditioning for runners without question, but also for field sports players and you know anyone that executes anything uh, on one leg or two legs. Um, and I, I think Franz Bosch, and I give him a lot of credit for this. If you go back, you know, 2004, 2005, when he first came on the scene outside of, you know, Holland, when he first came in, in into our cultural awareness, coordination training was really not good. It was really rudimentary. It ten, tended to be different coaches, certainly in track and field, had their favorite drills. And that was what happened. There was no real deep understanding of what it was or how critical it was. So, so I think Franz did a, did a really good job there. Um, now, what I would say is where we are at the moment, it has kind of turned into uh, a situation where everybody is making up coordination drills 
Uh, and, you know, you turn on YouTube and there's lots and lots of different things. But I guess it's getting harder and harder to draw the distinction between is this actually an effective coordination drill or pretty much a circus act? Is this me learning a trick and then being able to do the trick and it looks impressive, but it isn't really carrying over to my real world sporting activity, which is the absolute meat and drink that I want to affect. Uh, and I think that's kind of where we are at the moment. There's a lot of confusion in the field. That I think there is quite a bit of evidence, but it tends to be buried in esoteric journals of experimental neurology and so on, or experimental brain research, and um, it isn't clear to us. Now, I guess there's a couple of obvious things. Um, you talked about adaptability. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I guess the, the Glenn Cunningham and Serena Burla examples are, if they do one thing, it's illustrate how adaptable humans can be. Uh, now, that level of, of adaptive plasticity, it's a blessing on one hand, and it's a curse on another. And I think the curse in running contexts, you could illustrate by just discussing the, the topic of overuse. So, again, with overuse injury, you're running. You're running, let's say, pretty much the same way for miles and miles. Maybe you're on high mileage. Maybe you're a little bit tired. Maybe you've had previous injuries. But let's say there's a whole host of factors that uh, constrain how you run. And then unless you take efforts to to broaden those constraints and ensure that you you can run in an adaptive, flexible way in which you are responsive to uh, all kinds of perturbations and challenges, then ultimately that's the root cause of overuse. It's like I do the same way until the same way becomes the only way that I can do. And I become so efficient that in my brain, I need less and less cortical real estate to execute this movement and on a physical level then I need less and less muscular activation which sounds like a good thing until it becomes to the state where you're now becoming deconditioned and anything that falls outside of that very narrow narrowly constrained uh, stride pattern coordination pattern becomes a challenge that you're not now conditioned for and, and that's when the wheels start to come off and that's where the little hot spots start to emerge tendon keeps getting pulled in the same way by the same motor units you can start getting a little bit of a hot spot develops on an articular surface and then and the wheels just start to come off a little bit later you start feeling pain somewhere oh you know, it's my knee. Well, it is your knee. That's where the pain is, but that's not where the problem is necessarily. The problem is too much of the same thing. And that same plasticity that kind of bestows us with this fantastic adaptability and fantastic ability to learn various skills, that's now become a constraining kind of a, a rut. And, and that's the way I kind of think of it. It's when you're young, if you can imagine yourself, uh, taking a, a sled, going to the top of a hill, nobody else has been there, you slide down. Every now and again, there's a rock, there's a there's a tree, there's some hardwired reflex, there's some ana anatomical feature that you have to work around. But your, your sensory system finds ways to work around all those. 
the next time you go down that slope, you're slightly biased towards going the same way and the next time and the next time. From a running perspective, what you want, you want that slope to be, you, you want a track embedded there. It's greased, it's compacted, it's super fast, but it's not too narrow. It's not too broad, so it's unbeaten, it's greased, but it's not too narrow. You keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and eventually the edges creep in and now it becomes a rut. And when you're stuck in a rut, that's when you're kind of predisposed to all the overuse syndromes. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I actually kind of covered my next question a little bit in terms of why we get hurt more often than the animals, which, I mean, people will say, you know, it's like, well, animals don't lift weights and we have a lot of forebrain, you know, more outer brain than they do and think about things. But it's like we're probably the only people on this planet that actually run in circles intentionally <laughs> for or, or, you know, do something intentionally uh, sustained, like where animals have a lot more variability in the, wired in. Well, well, I guess just to be contrary here, I don't know if we get injured more often because I don't think anyone's done the stats on that. I don't think anyone's passed out the, the questionnaire to a couple of thousand boys and, and say, well, <laughs> who picked up an overuse injury the last time you, you know, you, you migrated a couple of hundred miles. So I don't know about that. I guess the other thing is we're strange in the sense that we run a lot, not because we're forced or not because we're being chased, but because, hey, we love to run or we're training for competition or I really want to get that marathon on my bucket list or whatever it is. I presume, you know, an animal is going to say, mm, I want to get there mildly faster than I am and I'll run. Every now and again, there might be like that two minutes of blinding panic when a predator passes. But other than that, I'd say they're pretty economical in how they run. They're probably not as, um, yeah, I don't think they're probably as hung up on training schedules and so on as we are. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, where, where our stats come from, too, you know, we maybe operate on an N of one where the middle aged, you know, men's softball game and someone runs first base and pulls their hamstring. It's like, oh, like, you know, I didn't see my dog do that. I mean, it's probably easy to easy to make decisions and assumptions there. I, I uh, but what, what, going back to what you were saying a little bit. And then you said this in your um, the running article that you had written, and and it's something that honestly has been in my mind ever since. So and you just talked about it a little bit, but that was the widening and narrowing of the nervous system. And so this is like, it's almost been a, a decade's worth of kind of unpacking this idea, but I, I, was a, I was a high jumper in track and field. And, and I always noticed when I was playing basketball, I was, could jump very high, but the more I got away from basketball, the, and just did you know standard training that was more, I guess you could say in the rut type, type movements, that was more narrow work. Um, my, my jumping would either, either injury creep up or I would start to stagnate. I noticed that trend with a lot of athletes actually. And, and so I would always try to play games once a week in our training or something that was just completely open. Uh, but I, I wanted to actually unpack that a little bit, like, cause I, you had mentioned cortical real estate in the brain and you had mentioned the widening and narrowing of the nervous system. And I would just actually, if you could go into that exactly what's happening there, um, from a brain science level, cause I, I think that's. Um, it's something not a lot of people think about, but I think it has so many training implications, not just for injury, but also even performance. Well, I guess 
I mean, obviously, I'm not a, a brain scientist. I am just, a, a, I guess, a keen student. Um, but, and there's, there's detail and there's intricacies and there's complications around all of these, but I'd be, you know, it, it, it's pretty well established that you start to learn, well, okay, first off, every, every motor unit in your body is connected to your brain by a neuron. Uh, sorry, by a, by a, a nerve. And, and the nerve and the neuron are pretty much the same. So there's a neuron in the motor cortex, there's a nerve that goes down, goes into the, exit your spinal cord, goes into the muscle and attaches to uh, the motor end plate of a motor unit. You want to turn on that motor unit and that neuron just activates, just fires. Signal goes down, the nerve, out your spinal cord, boom. And all the fibers attached to that motor unit contract or try to contract. Uh, and, and that's basically it. Now, the more, as we said at the start, you're an infant, you're, you're pretty much a blank slate. Yeah, of course, you have tendencies and so on, but you, you don't have anything hardwired in there. The more you move, the more you start to plastically change the, the way the neurons in your motor cortex relate to each other. Simple example, if... Uh, if I am a violinist, and and this work has been done with with violin violinists plenty of times, and I start to learn, and I start to you know, so the, I have a left hand that let's say um, plays the actual note, and then a right hand that holds the bow. So over time, the the motor maps. So basically, the neurons in your motor cortex that represent the finger, the the the. Your, your fingers will be co become more well defined than the corresponding maps for your hand that holds the bow. Similarly, if you again this work has been done, if you get a monkey, you sew two of their fingers together, their motor maps blur. So basically, the the represent the neural representations of how those uh, entities are separately controlled blurs and it merges a few days later you cut the stitches the monkey moves his fingers independently and those maps start to separate again so if you translate upwards into into us um anytime we learn a skill there is actually i mean it isn't some amorphous philosophical motor motor plan or motor program that's mystically formed in your brain it's actually a hard physical change that happens microscopic yes or very small at least yes but if if neuron a and neuron b are intimately involved in executing a skill then they will start to wire together more effectively and efficiently than if they weren't working together and hence the kind of the, the, the strap line in that research neurons that wire together fire together or fire apart wire apart and so on uh, so so yeah so basically that's at least at the level of the motor cortex that's what happens when you learn a skill so what happens in as we transition through from birth into into childhood is these the motor maps of uh, representing neurons that we regularly use expands as we become more and more practiced at that skill, what actually happens is that 
motor map space contracts. Now, that sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually not. What it is, is it's necessary efficiency. So it's like, you know what, I can execute this skill perfectly, but I've become so good at it that I can do it with less kind of volume of neurons as I currently have, that, as I currently have. Uh, and uh, obviously, neurons are, are a really precious commodity, so your brain doesn't want to uh, equip neurons just to execute one type of movement. They say, well, you know, if we don't need that one, let's farm it out to some other movement. So the natural progression is uh, more neurons involved in a movement when you're learning, then you learn it, less neurons involved in, in activating or controlling that movement. Now, you extend that on where I become super skilled, but I actually start to overdo it and the efficiency goes a little bit dysfunctional in terms of I, I keep contracting and contracting my, my working population until eventually it just doesn't work. Now, you can clearly see this in things like uh, if you've ever come across mu musicians cramp where you get a violinist who's playing for years and all of a sudden they can't play the notes. There's just some type of lock that's just, uh, I know what I should be doing, but I can't do it. And it's just like the maps have become so uh, finely detailed that they, they, they just collapse in on top of one another and you can't execute it. You can't execute something that's been over-practiced. Now, I have seen it actually in a runner. <laughs> Uh, and it's amazing in a distance runner that they just developed a completely weird, really noticeable uh, quirk out of the blue. Just after high mileage, just quirk. And all of a sudden there's this crazy flick that wasn't there. Now, normally you don't get to see that because someone gets injured before they get to that stage. You know, just uh, they, they, they're pinging overuse or something. But... Uh, but yeah, quite, quite bizarre. And that, you know, it obviously happens it, as we move into extreme old age. It's the same thing. Things just become overpracticed, and all of a sudden, you know, the way sometimes you see someone that is is old and frail, and the movements have become, even if there's no physical limitation, the the flexibility or dexterity or adaptability that they can perform or, or really practice movement deteriorates and it becomes nearly a nearly a caricature of what it was. Um, and, and I think that this is all ultimately a phenomenon that it, you can trace back to plasticity or neuroplasticity. Yeah, I think two of the most um, alive looking like dynamic, um, I guess, older uh, humans I've seen there's two there's a video of two 60 year olds from Brazil 60 something doing break dancing and these guys were just like able to do everything just full of like full of life and like they're you know just doing like these crazy flips and tricks but I'm like like that's variability like that's a fountain of youth right there you know like oh yeah absolutely I mean I mean and it is variability and it's if you think if you compare it maybe to distance running as an example now obviously distance running is extremely healthy for a huge amount of reasons but you need to take care about getting your uh, variability in there um or coordination unless coordination is stimulated to improve mm -hmm. there will come a stage when you are 
when resources are low, be it that be those resources low because of, of, of aging or because you're very tired or anything like that, where you will start to contract in in yourself in terms of your coordination patterns. Something like break dancing, I mean, like that's an amazing, you know, the strength, the stability, there's flexibility, there's agility, there's power, there's endurance, there's a whole a whole hamper full of good stuff in there. Yeah, I was on a little kick on that in high school and actually really helped my other skills in many regards. It was just, it was, uh, that was a really fun experience. I, you well, I, I actually, you know, just to jump in there, a good example is, so you go back maybe 2000 and there was a lot of talk with early specialization and get the kids in young and get them training hard. And the pendulum has totally swung against that now because the stats are just showing that, you know, you over-specialize too early and there's a lot of injury, you know, and there's a lot of breakdown and there's a lot of emotional, uh, there's an emotional toll and there's a lot of uh, people just moving away from the sport. So I think that, you know, that's just another manifestation of the same phenomenon. And I think it's not confined to the brain or anything like that or to sport. It's just as humans were built to, you know, it's all about baby bears porridge. Too much, too little is not good for us. What we need is, uh, um, what would you call it? Yeah, some kind of focused variability and enough variability that we're constantly getting exposure to uh, a wide diversity of challenges. Oh, yeah, right on. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I As you were talking to, I had two thoughts uh, in terms of like the, the expansion and contraction of the brain real estate and when it gets too contracted, and I know you've done a lot of uh, work with Martin Bingesser, and I was thinking about the Bonderchuk training system and how you have everything is the same, like every exercise is the same, and you keep going through that program until you adapt. And so would that kind of be, do you think that point in adaptation in that training cycle where your performance peaks and then you start to drop reflects the brain's real estate maybe changing as well? I'm sure there's so many things going on, but or, or any skill we could plug into training, really, any exercise, so to speak. Um, I hadn't thought about it in that context, and I think that would be a really awkward one for me to answer, not because I don't want to answer it, but there's a lot of kind of curly yeah. bits and little cul-de-sacs in, in what, you, what you said there. What I would say in relation to practical training, uh, well, I guess all training is practical, but two things. One's one, in relation to strength training, I think for too long, strength training has been too constrained, uh, too much of just get strong. Just get strong if you're weak. If you're already strong, yeah, okay, now we need to find some other ways to challenge you. Uh, and I think that, yeah, I think strength training has seen a transition from really a very much squat clean bench type focus to a focus that is more wide based, uh, more 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 diversity in there. But I think we're at the stage now where sometimes it just seems like diversity for diversity stake. Uh, so we need to kind of get some philosophical perspective on, hang on, how much variety do I need? And then like, you know, some handle on what is the right amount of variety for this team or this individual in this season and then some ways to control that variety and some ways to track it and monitor it and monitor monitor its effects i think that's how we can move forward on the strength perspective 
on the coordination training perspective, as I mentioned earlier, the, I, I think this is largely untapped territory. Um, and I maybe I, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. So when we kicked off, I said that, you know, there's a number of different centers that control coordination. Uh, there's your higher brain, there's lower brain centers, cerebellum and so on. There's uh, central pattern generators, these neuronal circuits that, that embed kind of templates for rhythmical movement. There's really fast and, and much slower uh, spinal and postural reflexes. So there's a whole, there's a whole, you know, there's quite, a, there's a number of centers all the way down the central nervous system that are involved in controlling movement. But we tend to think of movement coordination as controlled really just by the brain. And depending on what or who, whose philosophy you buy into, your coordination training might be, well, you just do the activity, but you do a wide diversity of the activity. So if you're a football player, you do all kinds of drills and you play football, you might play small-sided games and that takes care of that. And you think, okay, yeah, well, you know what, that would certainly take care of a chunk of it, but there's no way it takes care of all of it. So, for example, if, I am, if I'm left-footed and I'm playing soccer for 15 years, there's going to be a coordinated coordination asymmetry in my body. The more that asymmetry grows, you got to ask the question, does that set me up for A, poor performance, or B, higher risk of injury? And I would think all logic would suggest, um, yeah, probably. Yeah, so, so how do we correct that? Uh, well, we don't. We kind of tend to ignore it, right? If we look at reflexes, well, okay, we've got slower reflex. We've got postural reflexes. So, for example, I stand on one leg and I feel... Uh, that I'm starting to topple over and some reflexes kick in. I don't have to think about it. It just boom, 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 kicks in and I write myself. Okay, so they seem like important, especially in sports where I'm bouncing from one leg to the next. They're, they're going to be important. Would they go a little, would they be knocked out of calibration if I overtrained or if I did a, a lot of mileage or I did too much movement in the same movement pattern, or I got a knock in the football match at, at the weekend, and you think, yeah, yeah, it would. It would go out of whack. Okay, and am I now at a risk unless I restore that and recalibrate it in some way? And I, you know, my logic would say, uh, actually, yeah, it would be. And I think that's it. For anyone who works a lot with injured athletes, I mean, it's a clear giveaway of prior injuries is that, hey, your stability seems slightly different one side to the next. Now, you can see it at normal speed, but if we slow it right up, you can see it. Is that something that should be trained? Is it trained on, an, on a regular basis? Not really. Another thing that we don't train is, so again, I talked about fast reflexes, slow reflexes. So, for example, if I'm balancing on a single leg, uh, and I'm doing something with my free leg, let's say I'm doing a single leg RDL or an arabesque or one of those movements, if you're familiar with them, or just some simple kind of slow sidekick. Um, or I'm standing on an Airx pad or a wobble cushion or something like that. They're all pretty much slow reflexes in terms of my foot is on the ground, 
I'm perturbing my movement or my movement has been perturbed and then uh, some reflexes, a whole series of reflexes are kicking in to restore movement uh, and rebalance me. But how about if my sport is I'm a basketball player, a volleyball player, and I'm about quick landings and really quick reflexes, so really quick 50 milliseconds type range. How is that training that? Uh, and you read the science, and there, there isn't a lot there, but it looks like, well, actually, that's not training that. It's training something different. So how do we train that? Okay, well, there's a question. Now, you know, I mean, I, I, I think there's answers, but I guess what I'm what I'm slowly and clumsily getting at is that we think of coordination as one thing, but it's not. Coordination is a number of different things or a number of different targets you need to hit to have a wholly coherent coordination training system. And, you know, I haven't seen that. I've worked with a lot of really good track and field coaches who are really good at this stuff, but I haven't seen a full a coordination training system that covers the full spectrum. A lot of work with Franz, great respect for him. But again, I don't see that full spectrum there. Um, and I think that that's probably the next step is us developing a, a, a more coherent and wide-ranging coordination training system. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. So, John, based off that, uh, you talk about full spectrum of co- the coordination package. So, what, in a nutshell, what practically are our coordinative means that we should be having in an athlete's performance program for running or, or any sports skill? I guess that's, that last little bit made it wide, but based off what you were talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a tough question, but I'll give it my best shot in terms of where my, my thinking is at the moment. Um, there's one really important thing that I, I didn't mention yet. Uh, so it's coming in pretty late, but I think it's incredibly important. And that is, there is no accurate athletic movement without really well calibrated interpretation of sensory information. So, so maybe I'll just say that again. Every movement you do is totally dependent. How you execute is totally dependent on the, on how your central nervous system interprets sensory feedback. And I think we all we all kind of know that intellectually, but we never talk about it in practice. I mean, I've never heard a coach ask about how do we train interpretation of sensation or sensory interpretation. But yet it's totally half of of the battle, really. I mean, if you think about it, for me to move, I send a signal, I send a feed forward activation signal to my muscle. But to know where I am in time and space and how big or small or fast or slow that signal needs to be, I need accurate interpretation of where I am in space and time. So I need to accurately in- interpret feedback sensory information. And I guess they're irrevocably entwined. As soon as I send an activation signal, it changes sensory information. As soon as I receive sensory information, it changes activation signal. And that's the way we work. It's not a send a signal, wait for sensory information. It's like mutually entwined, happening in real time, I send a signal, 
feedback changes. I change the signal according to that feedback, feedback changes some more. And that's the loop. And it's even a mistake to for me to say things like feedback and feed forward. It's just all one loop. It's, you know, the technical term is it's, it's a sensory motor loop. Um, and, and that, you know, when you think about that, it kind of puts a little bit of an interesting spin on, on how we execute coordination training. One thing is if we want to drive plastic change, then that's all dependent on feedback information. Essentially, it's it's how you treat feedback information and how pertinent and important that feedback information is to ongoing movement success that will regulate whether or not the resources necessary to drive plastic change will be allocated to that aspect of the movement or not. When you're a kid, it's easy to drive plastic change. Everything does it because it's all new. When you're an adult, i.e. a mature athlete, it's not so easy um, because resources are scarce and precious up there. So what seems to regulate it is the, how your brain prioritizes the movement. Okay, so okay. In, what they would say is you are paying attention to it, but it's not attention is I'm listening intently. It's that you're... Uh, your lower brain centers are focused on the feedback. So, for example, I'll give you an exa a practical example. Uh, if you're standing on one leg doing a, some type of arabesque type movement on an Airx pad and you're not used to doing it, your brain will kind of go offline. If I ask you what you're thinking about, you'll go, oh, I'm not really sure. And that's just you getting out of the way and what's happening is neural resources are just focusing on sensory information, ping, 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 react, react, react. And it's it's a good guide to whether or not your coordination training is working. Can someone execute it without concentrating? If they can, you need to go up a level. Alternatively, if someone is failing too often, you need to go down a level, but you it's a constantly moving target. The figure they'll throw out in the neuroscience literature is roughly 75% of the time you succeed, but about a quarter of the time you fail this specific task. John, I, I really like that. I, you know, you talking about the 75%, the 25% and, and the conscious awareness really makes me think of people draw that line between the intersection of rehabilitation and and strength training as like the performance zone, right? I, I've seen that Venn diagram. I think it's really interesting in it. What you were just saying really makes me think about that. And I know we talk about coordination training a lot uh, these days and, and for good reason. And so in terms of like, like a checklist, like things, I'm programming exercises in the system and I'm, I'm trying to kind of check off boxes and say, okay, I want to the, these boxes to be checked so I know this athlete is going to improve their coordination specific to the skill they're trying to develop. Um, what are some what are some things that we could check off? Okay, well that's a six million dollar question, and I think that and you know having kind of been around elite training environments for quite a while now, I think that in general we do it okay. But I think there are a number of, yeah, I, 
I think thought is evolving so quickly that I I don't I can't point at any previous work that absolutely nailed it, including my own work. I, I just don't think we've had the the background. So what we do is we, we get people that buy into one school of thought. You know, it has to be very specific. It has to be fast. Uh, or we get others who think, well, no, it, you know, it has to be slow and controlled. Um, so I kind of have it broken down in my head for if, if I'm looking at coordination training, a really effective coordination training program, then I think there are elements to it that are slow, controlled, demand focused attention, allow you time to process sensory information and make subtle adjustments to maintain stability or direction of travel or you know uh, whatever may be appropriate for the movement uh, so an example of a movement like that might be i'm on an airx pad i'm in my bare feet the coach has given me some type of stability challenge and it may be that i'm going to do some type of slow controlled sidekick with my free leg while my standing leg just stabilizes and what happens there all the time, obviously, is that stabilization reflexes are constantly flicking on and off. Uh, lower level centers responsible for coordinating movement are being pinged all the time by sensory information at the level of spinal cord and they're having to make quick adjustments. At the same time, higher up the chain, uh, motor cortex is kind of thinking, okay, I need to adjust my posture slightly. I need to do this slightly. I need to shift my balance slightly. So there's a lot of dimensions of coordination that are that are getting hit there. Now, they're not things that I. They're things that commonly we tend to neglect, and we don't do enough of that training. Uh, now there may be arguments against it. Well, you know, if somebody is fit and healthy, they don't need it. Uh, well, maybe, but, <clears throat> and again, we don't have hard science on this, but certainly the feedback I've got from senior elite athletes is that type of stuff seems to help quite a number of them. Like every type of training, it won't tick the box for everyone. But I think especially for people who maybe who've had a number of years of service in a sport, who've accumulated injuries, who've had their overuse syndromes, who've taken knocks and bangs, that type of recalibration work, I would suggest is very valuable. And it's easy stuff, it's low energy, it can be relatively low time cost, it doesn't generate a lot of fatigue. What it really takes is a little bit of design. Uh, and by design, I mean, there has to be an element of challenge. And I'm, I already mentioned the kind of 75% as a, as a broad, target market mark i mean if i'm doing a rep and it's maybe a it involves a a slow step up to a box and maybe on the not on the other side to the leg i'm stepping on i have to for example let's say do a a, a dumbbell press so something that's setting up kind of cross tension across my my torso um yeah, 75%. Now, that doesn't mean you fall down. It just means mm -hmm. you kind of lose balance and you, you have to break your, your rhythm to restabilize. Those type of things, I think, are really useful. So let's just say we have one category of, of coordination exercise that might be called, you know, uh, slow controlled. And that's the watchword. They're the watchword, slow and controlled. Now, it could be, it could, it could be a slow controlled walking drill uh, or reverse walking drill. 
It could be uh, a step up onto a box, for example, or a step down, but slow, controlled, time to process sensory information, very, very precise coach instructions. You need to pay attention to your posture, chest stays big, whatever it might be, but the coach is guiding the, the, the athlete's attention around their body by their instructions. You need to stiffen up in your ankle when you land in that box, blah, blah, blah. You need to control your knee movement, all those type of things. So let's say the slow controlled, it could be static standing on an instability pad. It could be a slow walking drill. It could be a step up drill or a step down drill, as I said. So anyway, I've rabbited on about that enough. So another category then would be more dynamic drills, but where you, the, the, the outcome and the direction of travel are planned. So for example, uh, I am doing a dynamic step up um, and maybe I'm starting with, if you can imagine, just as an example, I have a four or six inch box in front of me. Then there's a, there's a much higher box in front of that box. So I'm starting with my strike leg poised four or five inches over the small box. I'm balanced there like that. I'm going to strike as hard as I can into the box, but without winding up that leg. In other words, without lifting up that leg and slamming it down. It's just a really quick activation. And I'm onto the box with sufficient force to propel me up into the high box, as an example. Now, there's multiple variations you could do here. If, I, if the athlete is... Uh, adequate at the basic movement. I might put a band around their chest attached to a squat rack, or it could be uh, a dowel overhead with a two and a half or five kilo weight hanging off one side, or we can add any layer of challenge on there depending on the athlete's ability. But the key thing is the athlete thinks, okay, uh, I need to think about coach to, to think about posture. Okay, chest is big, shoulders back, uh, head forward, eyes front. Uh, the coach wants me to work my, my my ankle stiffness. So when I hit the box, I'm going to hit it like with a half foot contact. So just my front half of my foot is on, but I can't let my heel drop, for example. Uh, and then I propel myself up uh, and, you know, and, and I land. So something like that. And again, what, you're, what the coach is doing is guiding attention around the athlete's body, making the athlete focus and setting a le level of difficulty that if the athlete doesn't pay attention to both the coach's, instru coach's instruction and what they're doing, then they don't have a successful outcome and they don't learn. Yeah, I, um, I like that a lot. Yeah, and now you can do that. Uh, you can do that in, in, as I said, step up, step down. Uh, you can use instability pads. There isn't really any rules we have other than we want it to be relevant to uh, the athlete's sport. So if you're a swimmer and you're doing a dynamic step up, maybe that's not relevant. But if you're a field sports player or a runner, uh, you know, or a jumper, then it's going to be very relevant. Um, and then I think the other thing that you would build into those dynamic drills are, or sorry, those dynamic movement challenges are uh, things like hopping holes. So I, I come down from a box and I stick my landing. 
or I come down from a box, I land on an instability pad and I stick my landing. Uh, or I do, you know, three or four micro hurdle hops and then I turn and stick. But again, the objective is, okay, we want a pre-planned movement. We want, as coaches, we want to specify, we want, we want to guide the athlete's attention around their body by saying, okay, you need to think about, we need a good stick here. Or we give them, there's an instability pad that they land on. So there's a little bit of uh, dynamic perturbation there. And it's really just playing about with the constraints in an appropriate way to set the level of challenge for the athlete that it's always, it's always, I always have to pay close attention to what I'm doing to successfully complete the, the, the task the coach has set. So, so far we have two broad categories we have okay let's slow purposeful and then we have okay this is more dynamic but it's it's a relatively closed type of skill i mean it's not open decision making it's this is what i do the third category i think then would be where it's not pre-planned uh now i think that there's lots of in every sport has has drills that uh, challenge athletes in a non-pre-planned way, be it, you know, I receive a pass and I have to pass to whatever player is available or the coach points here and I have to pass there. So so we don't need to talk about those, but, you know, those type of dynamic change of direction, acceleration, deceleration drills are obviously fundamental towards the back end of rehab processes and return to play processes and in general conditioning. But we all know and love those, and, and all, every sport has its fair uh, share of, of drills that, that people commonly use. The, the one thing that is very underused and very under-investigated, I'm only aware of a couple of studies, and uh, they've been done by, the, there's a German uh, therapist who works in Malaysia, uh, works a lot, Malaysians, I don't know if you know this, but they're really successful in a couple of sports, squash for example badminton you know they're 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 pretty awesome in 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 those type of events and one of the things that he studied is the value of uh unpredictable perturbations now just as a qualifier this has mostly been in people returning from injury but they've got pretty dramatic results so for example a simple drill might look like uh, I'm going to do a, I, I'm going to step off a box. And it, it's not a high box, maybe a 20 centimeter box. You know, it's not very high. And I'm just going to stick the landing. So it's an easy task. And just as I'm stepping, stepping off, I get a nudge. Simple as that. I just get a nudge. I get a push. I have a partner behind me and they give me a little push. So that is a, an unexpected perturbation. I don't hit the ground as I planned. And all these really short loop really primitive reflexes have to kick in, boom, 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 and then I stabilize. Uh, another one might be I'm going for a basketball layup and I get nudged again. So again, my landing is thrown off and I have to adjust. And again, if the short loop reflexes have to kick in really quickly and correctly, and then the longer loop reflexes kick in and then my conscious control kicks in. Now, that sounds like really simple stuff, but the amazing thing has been, 
even with international level athletes, the level of improvement that they've gotten in things like short-term speed, uh, jump ability, basic metrics, are, you know, of, of, you know, coherent, powerful athletic movement. Now, it's hard to scale those type of drills up. It's, easily, it's easy if you've one priority athlete uh, and you're doing one-on-ones with them. But if how do you scale those type of exercises up to 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 squads, especially if you're maybe if you're an SNC in a university and you're working with a number of squads and it's rigidly timetabled and there's large numbers, what can you do? Um, and I would think I, I would think that that there is again there's exercise design ways around that. Um, so it may be that we're doing uh, some type of jumps. Or hop and holds or repeat jumps where it's over an obstacle onto a instability pad or something like that. Obviously, it needs to be regulated for safety. It needs to be regulated for challenge. But it's just to say to people, because this message isn't out there, that there's a logical, rational explanation why those type of movements would be really important. Every time you hit the ground, it's those really rudimentary short uh, loop reflexes that kick in first. If they don't kick in exactly the right time, exactly the right uh, intensity, then movement smoothness is kicked off a little bit. Um, And this is all at the micro level, stuff you can't see, uh, but stuff that's going on all the time. And what, what you want, like what the perfectly coordinated athlete has is, have these really quick reflexes kick, kicking in and then these uh, longer loop reflexes kick in and then there's all these neural centers in the spine that kick in their control and then at the top your brain is sitting there having very little to do it's just saying go left go right and then your spinal cord is taking care of everything else when it's working effectively all those individual compartments uh, collaborate seamlessly but you're very fatigued, you've taken a couple of knocks, you have a number of historical injuries, and the synchronization between those, those those different departments, if you like, starts to go off a little bit, and movement becomes a little less smooth, a little more clunky, you're hitting the ground a little harder, you're a little less efficient, uh, your knee gets a bit more grumbly, all those kind of things start to happen. So, in a, in a very, I guess, I don't say rudimentary but obviously each of these things you can go deeper and deeper into each of these elements but as a broad overview and for me as a practitioner who I guess you know 20 years really working with athletes who are either actively injured or recovered from injury or history of lung injury they're the type of they're the components that I think of when I'm introducing a program not necessarily a rehab program but how can I make this player more more efficient on the on the pitch or on the track? What can we do? And it's not like it's a you always have elements of box one, box two, box three. It's like, well, okay, what's the right blend for this specific athlete? Now, just to say, in a lot of contexts I've worked in, you have the luxury of working with one athlete for an extended period of time, and I know a, a lot of your listeners will work with large squads, but again. My perspective is if you can introduce any of these elements in, even in subtle ways, none of them take an awful lot of time. And that's the the marvelous thing about them. You can get good results pretty quickly. 
it just takes a little bit of planning and a little bit of design and these things can go in in the the start in the middle at the end of sessions they can be dotted around the training week tagged on to the back of warm-ups you know i think they can be implemented really easily they don't have to be big blocks of training they don't add a lot of fatigue but you know all the evidence and it points to these are likely to work i would say that all my experience points to that as well but experience is always going to be biased and there's no reason why people should should, should believe my experience but at least what i'm suggesting is there's a rational line of thought and people can feel free to knock it as they see fit yeah i think um i think every time we get into instability right there's always the people who are going to knock that and be like oh it doesn't it doesn't get you as strong like like you know the typical train i i've found um i've gotten into the marv marinovich probot x stuff with which uh it was really the whole system revolved most a lot around the balance balls and and balance discs and dynamic stabilization and he did a little bit of maximal force work on like bearcats and kaiser type uh movements but talking to athletes who have gone through that system they loved it like they just felt really good and even myself doing that type of work for a few months i remember um back when i was like 22 i, I noticed a significant change even in my vertical jump even though it wasn't like I wasn't lifting the heaviest weights, but it was just something my I felt like my body needed and was able to overcome a new challenge. And so that's that stuck with me. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think that, you know, we have or what we should have, I think, as coaches is this is this big box of training tools. And it's just being aware that, the you know, yes, some of the traditional tools are great and no one is, is saying move away from good heavy strength training or anything like that but what you are saying is hey there's other dimensions of uh, of of training that can meaningfully contribute to your movement proficiency it's not just about let's get strong and i can be as strong you can make me as strong as you want but if i have one knee where the control is loose and just making that leg stronger isn't remedying that then what are you going to do because if you're just if you're just a let's get strong squat big guy you're not going to fix that for me so it's just yeah let's let's put the big rocks in place but let's fill in the gaps as well and a lot of the time filling in the gaps can be really easy really time efficient it just takes a little bit of planning a little bit of design from the coach and then these little these small little inserts can be infiltrated in the training week uh, in a way that that's really productive for the athlete without interfering with, as I said, the, the you know the, the big the big rocks of their their training. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing, the last thing I'll I'll ask and mention, and I did find this really interesting as you're talking about the perturbations and the reflexes, and every time I watch a con well any sporting movement to be honest, but uh, specifically some things like like javelin throw where the timing is just so it's just so crazy to watch like when the plant leg comes down and then the force transmits through the body and and it really just reminds me how in any sport timing is just so critical and listening to you talk about the feedback loops is really interesting and so but that got me that got me thinking of a few things um one just like uh contact sports almost it's like basketball i think that could be even be built into the sport like because you're constantly getting it as a function of people running into you or having to jump after getting bumped around or those types of ideas and i'm always looking at why 
I always go back to I always use myself as an example. It's where at least my ideas start or even athletes I've seen working with high jumpers and things like that, how basketball has such a tremendous impact. And I think there's so many things in that game that are built in to to why we see good results in that realm and arena. Well, the only, the only thing I'd say with the basketball is when you're playing a game and let's say you jump and you get uh, you, you get bashed in the air, that's a kind of a, a pass-fail test. You either stick the landing or you come down and, and you get injured or you lose balance. Mm-hmm. Whereas in training, what you can do is you can moderate the challenge to, and to the extent that it's, this is a moderate challenge to this person it is perfectly safe and next week we're going to push it forward a little bit whereas under game conditions you can't do that it's pass fail you know you you might get injured whereas in in training and that's what training is all about how can i make you more resilient okay i can make you more resilient by drip feeding you this challenge on a regular basis so when it comes to the big the big perturbation in the biggest match of your life you can cope with it efficiently and and say and and robustly yeah you have that that can fine-tuned control i i uh wanted to so ask you too so with the given the the perturbation idea uh just talking about the reflexes and coordination of all things and i was i wanted to get your take on how giving an internal cue impacts impacts things like can it be useful still we hear a lot of internal versus external cues and given the timing of the body and the reflexes uh, and and everything that goes into producing movement. Uh, what what does internal cueing do? Like, can it be useful? Is it? How do we approach something like telling an athlete, okay, you're gonna you're gonna throw, and now I want you to lead with your elbow, or anything like any any sort of sport cue that you're trying to give to somebody. Well, I guess the problem with this argument, like so many other arguments, is that it's it tends to be down a an either or type choice, you know, it's all external cueing. But certainly if you want to enhance uh, an athlete, an athlete's awareness of, you know, when you do this movement, this is what's happening. Then what I would do is I would slow it up and I would guide the athlete's attention to how they're, how they're feeling uh now this applies definitely to for me at least to, to people coming back from injury or with significant prior injury one of the things that happens with injury is you lose the ability to properly interpret the sensory information coming from that previously injured tissue so you need to re-educate that so i would think i can think of lots and lots of examples where certainly in the gym or in slow movement stuff on the track that i would guide the uh, athlete's attention internally. Obviously, if it's a if it's a, a competitive environment, if it's a, a practice game environment, if it's a uh, if it's a, a drill that is replicating or needs decision making at a higher level, then you would be telling the athlete to focus externally. But I think for me, it's using internal cues to to recalibrate. Um, the, the kind of brain spinal cord with the previously injured tissue or damaged tissue. And for that internal cueing, I think is, is, is really important, if not essential in isolated movements, 
you go into more complex uh, sports specific movements and then yeah you don't you're focusing mm -hmm. you focus on the outcome sure yeah that makes sense yeah and I, I i agree with you i do think it's it's definitely it's a spectrum not just a either this sure. is complete it's always in context and and yeah that's a great answer thank you for that and yeah john i i was just such a good talk today i really really learned a lot and i really um it, it makes me think of all the things too that people well a lot a lot of things that people readily will dismiss you know like um being all on the strength side of the spectrum or all on another side and I think it's in the middle where we just really find that gold in the training zone that's going to make an athlete better or bring an athlete back from injury faster. So it was really wonderful talking to you today. Thank you, Joel. I enjoyed it. Well, that's another show in the books, and this one was awesome. I learned a ton, and I hope you did as well. And I, I, even after in the training sessions after this episode, I was really just thinking of those those coordinative boxes and, and putting that together with some things I've learned from the Postural Restoration Institute and position. And it can go anywhere from the weight room to the finest of skills acquired in sport. So super cool episode. John's the man, and really enjoyed putting this one together. Uh, before you go, check out our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have Freelap, Gymware, KBox, um, they have Electro Stim, EMG Shorts, and pretty much the best or the, the best of in each tech category in sports performance. So be sure to visit them. Also, if you enjoyed the show, don't hesitate, leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your listening platform of choice, and we will see you guys next week. <laughs>